everyone, hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Fan Fiction Tapes. I am your host today, Maya, and I am joined by... Like always, it's Dylan. Hi. Hey, it's Cam. I'm back again. Nice to see everyone. <laughs> and we're happy to have you back, Cam. And as always, I am my producer, Ian. All right. The theme for today's episode is plot. Which type of plot? Yes. <laughs> so many options. Is it plot in quotations? That's my favorite kind of plot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what is a plot, I guess, is a good starting point to start off with. It is more or less the sequence of events that progress the story that's being told, which is a lot of words to say nothing. The plot's what the hap is f***ing. That's one for the week, Ian. Um, yeah. I haven't had to use the bleeper in a while. <laughs> yeah, a uh, plot happens. It is things that are happening, usually. So, plot is... Uh, usually, I would describe a plot as, like, you know, the checklist of things that happen. You know, you write everything out and then put them in an order and they happen. Plot. <laughs> now, some of you who've had some form of literature class may recognize either the hero's journey circle or a certain triangle, uh, sometimes referred to as the Vonnegut or Kurt Vonnegut uh, triangle due to, I believe, its origins with the Indiana writer. And these are somewhat simplistic, but, well, I mean, they're often used for introductory courses. Uh, introductions to structuring a plot. You have your exposition that whomstative, right? Who is go and where is the plot? Your rising action, your climax, your falling action, and your resolution. Very basic and fits to a very specific Western story structure. But again, it's an introductory thing. Cam, I believe this is something you know a few things about. Is there anything you'd like to uh, say to get us started, I suppose? Uh, sure. The... I I guess I'll give context for people who have never met me before. Um, hi, I'm Kim. I have a master's degree in creative writing, and this theoretically means I know how to talk about and teach writing. In practice, sometimes I do. Most times I just say cursed things for like 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> but yes, I have uh, in my time taught quite a few workshops on the nature of plot. And so I could be, um, I could go off for hours, but obviously I won't. Um, so I'm probably getting ahead of things. I, I seem to end up accidentally building segues for us a lot. But the thing that comes to mind when we're when we're talking about plot structures is something that I think a lot of people, a lot of writers, when they think about plotting um, as something that they either sit down and do on purpose or that kind of comes to them by accident is they look up these things like the Vonnegut triangle or the hero's journey, and they try to mold the story that they have in mind to fit the plot. And while I am 110% all for folks finding a structure and using it as a blueprint for the story they want to tell, if your story does not fit the prescriptive plot structure that you think it should, um, Find another plot structure, because plot is meant to serve your story. It's not meant to be a box through which you should constrain it. And I know we're going to talk about other plot structures, and I'll have a lot more to say about that, because there's one plot structure in particular that I really enjoy and have only recently been 
recently being relative exposed to it as a as an engager of media instead of just as like someone who learned how to teach writing but um that's the number one thing that i always underscore in my plotting workshops is that knowing how to plot is great and if you you know you want to tell a story but you're not sure how it's going to go looking up plot structures um is a great way to get started um but if you have the story and you're telling a story and then you find yourself thinking, oh, well, this story doesn't match the hero's journey, so I must be doing something wrong. Stop that because it's not true. A, there are a bunch of other plot tri- plot triangles, plot structures out there. And B, um, your plot should st- serve your story, not the other way around. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very strongly about this, as you can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, that was part of why we asked you to show up today, in addition to the fact that you're always a delight to have on. Um, Cam, I actually do have a question for you. Um, So I don't think I've ever heard the term Vonnegut triangle in any of my schooling, although I do recognize this sort of general shape of um, exposition, rising action, falling action, denouement. Um, Does the Vonnegut triangle have any relationship to the three-act structure? Uh, I guess it kind of depends on how you're looking at it. Um, so there's, I'm trying to find the actual title of it because I believe it's something called the shapes of stories. Um, there's, he wrote his master's thesis. Um, and the basic idea of that thesis is that a story's main character is the one driving the plot and that the ups and downs that main character experiences, um, that's what shapes the story. So it's not so much a triangle uh, in the sense of there's, you know, there's the beginning, the middle, and then the falling action and then the end. Um, It kind of looks almost like, like a deconstructive bell curve um, Hmm. where you, you, you bring the, you bring the character up, up a hill of goodness and then down and then at that that when it starts going down is when the bad I will make Ian's life easier and say bad crap starts to happen and then as it keeps going down uh, you're you're falling farther and farther as the main character into the pit of despair and then it ends with them rising up out of that not necessarily um, you don't necessarily see them to the end of rising out of whatever disaster they've gotten themselves into or whatever's befallen them but the story ends on a hopeful note that they will rise out so it's it's um i, I guess uh i'm trying to think of a good example so like for example uh, uh the one that my instructor uh, yeah the one that the instructor instructor taught it using the framework for was uh the story of jane eyre um which is like classics literature not for everyone to know but uh the main character comes across something wonderful gets it loses it goes through the process of that loss. And then by the end uh, of the story, she's getting it back is like the very, uh, the very simplistic way of describing it. Um, I know that someone else also has used uh, great expectations by Charles Dickens, but again, that's a classic. Not everyone likes the classics. So it's, it's a, I describe it to people that I teach workshops to as it's a great story structure to think about if you like stories that don't end on a happily ever after note, but end on a hopeful that things will get better note instead. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's not really a proper triangle. I just wanted to write the word triangle in the script, mm-hmm. so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that on purpose then? Oh, yes, that was intentional. <laughs> I <Triangle>. highlighted it. <laughs> So uh, what are what are some other less cringe plot structures we want to talk about then? Um, 
Well, you know, usually most stories would say build to sort of a climax, you know, you imagine. Um, to go into, you know, the old, my old hat, pick out stuff. Uh, I, I'm really fascinated by the way George R. R. Martin wrote the A Song of Ice and Fire series, because certain books are wild in that it's not one over, overarching plot. There are many character plots and how their plots go. But some of those plots are like, you know, the Red Wedding that happens halfway through through a book. Like, what? <laughs> you know, that's like the climax of that story. It's done. Halfway through. Okay, we're done. And, you know, then we have to build to a second major climax and everything. And I find that's so weird. And that's how... You know, George's gardening style of the way he just plants a seed, let, lets it grow slowly. You know, <laughs> he's let his garden get really unkempt and his goddamn plots everywhere that he needs to deal with. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's something really interesting I found. Uh, but, you know, you look at all sorts of things. I think in this day and age, people are looking for that, you know, sort of plot. I think there's also... Uh, in terms of like, like sort of new age media, I think people are trying the Star Wars plot a lot more, which is the heroes get a a win very early on. Things get very, very, very bad, and then they got to fight back again. Uh, I've seen this a few times now, and what do you guys think of that structure where like the heroes win, but they don't really solve the problems the first time? You know, that sort of thing i'm fine with it but it's it's one of those things where you're like trying to tell a series or a franchise from the get-go and that's i have mixed feelings on that because of mm -hmm. I, i'd rather the story be told than the story be told in the way that makes the most money I mean, it's not often that it may just be you want to talk about some other aspect or want to, you know, say that, okay, the big bad guy is defeated, but what he left behind or society is still not, you know, done, you know, in the correct way to where you can stop someone like him or him or them showing back up again. You know what I mean? I think it's sort of an exploration more of, Especially if you create like a system or a society within your story that is very flawed, that you need you want more time to explore it. Like, oh, it would make sense that he gets taken down here. But there's a lot more I want to say about this world or whatever. So maybe he can and how flawed the world is, it's possible that they come back or someone new takes their place, you know? I mean, uh, Mistborn Era 1 kind of follows that structure, yes. doesn't it? Uh, I was going to say that as, you know, I don't necessarily think that's an inherent problem with it. I just think that some of the recent rise has been from trying to make money off of it. But yes, I was going to say, yeah, Mistborn Era 1 is very much follows that. I mean, yeah, you always get stuff like that, though, with sort of like, you know, everyone needs a trilogy or everyone needs, you know, however many part series oh let's you know hunger games and harry potter both did the thing where it's like our last movie will split in two 
Okay. Yeah, and that's. I think that's yeah. detrimental to the industry as a whole. Yeah, and mm. in terms of writing, it you know, it, I guess it might have made a little bit of sense for Harry Potter. I think other books needed probably two in that franchise a bit more uh, than the last. And then with Hunger Games, it just well, the first movie isn't very well liked. I feel <laughs> because I. I don't think I got beyond the second book, honestly. I, I think I got Cobb bored and walked away. Well, I read the books, and the first half of the final book is all build-up, so it's hard to have, like, a sort of narrative climax when, you know, you're halfway your ending is halfway through the book of a yeah. trilogy, and you just want to make a fourth movie. That's hard to do, I think, is splitting one story into multiple parts when adapting it. Mm -hmm. Like, unless you're doing, like, almost an, like a TV show and you're splitting it into episodes, I think that's very, very difficult to split it up because episodes, you get a lot of really fine control over the breaks, whereas in movies, you have to... <sighs> I'm going to sound like a fucking mathematician again, but... um. <laughs> You have to tell the story of an entire curve in one to three boxes. But with a TV show, you can do that with, like, 52 boxes. I mean, it depends. Uh, and TV has gone a lot shorter in recent times, you know. They're just big movie, <laughs> you know, big movies by this point. Uh, you know, weekly movies mm. for, like, nine weeks. Uh, and that is something, you know, we, we should explore. But we look at, like, other sort of you know, plot structures, I think. And anthology plot structures become pretty popular recently, I think, where uh, they show little snippets of periods or of the journey. You don't see, like, everything, and each part of the story is more contained within itself. Well, in fact, characters later, but, you know, it's a bit different, you know. Uh, you know, if we look at stuff like uh, The Last of Us TV show, uh, a lot of the stories were focused on what we want to tell this week and what we learn or everything like that instead of, you know, uh, something from last week is immediately affecting us here. It was about more how the plot was secondary to the characters the entire time. And I think people are finding more and more that while a, a good plot is, like, obviously going to be an advantage and eventually you need a good plot. But I think people, especially when they come up with stories these days, try to focus a lot more on the characters than the plot. Yeah, I mean, the issue for me with, like, anthology-type stuff is, well, it's nice for me with the trend on characters because the first, like, Blarbo that I see, I will bite and bite hard. Uh, I don't... I often get very attached to characters I am shown very early on. I don't know why. And which for me means character-heavy emphasis is lovely because I get to follow the blurbos around. But anthology stuff is very, very neat. I like how it can tell stories. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work very well for me. Mm -hmm. Does anyone else have a less cringe plot structure? <laughs> I have one uh, that I, I, if anyone for some reason who's ever attended a workshop of mine is 
listening, you've heard me talk about this before. Um, one of the the story structures that I was exposed to um, unknowingly when I was shown Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood by my friends, which was the first anime that I ever watched. Um, and then I later learned about it in grad school and was like, oh, that's why the plot felt strange to me. So there's a plot structure called Kisho Tenketsu, and it is the kind of storytelling most closely associated with classic Japanese, Chinese, and Korean narratives. And it actually originated in Chinese four-line poetry. Um, and it follows a different a different structure than a lot of, you know, Western-oriented storytelling methods um, to the point where, you know, a lot of Western audiences are, you know, kind of put off by it a little bit um, just because it's not what we're used to. Um, but essentially... The, the story structure starts with an introduction, um, then we, we spend a long time in story development. Then instead of necessarily there being like a climax to the story, there's some sort of twist, and then we go down to the conclusion. So the main difference, um, obviously this is so general, every story is different, but the main difference that most Western audiences feel when they, you know, say, go from watching TV shows to uh, like anime is, you know, we, we as Western viewers are accustomed to only spending a little bit of time on the introduction. We get just enough scene setting and then we go right into the action of whatever has gone wrong in our main characters' lives. Um, in the Kisho Tenketsu storytelling structure, um, there's a lot more time spent on the introduction, the setting of the scene, and then moving slowly up to the realization, discovery, and the height of the plot twist point, um, which was a very foreign experience for me as a first-time anime watcher. I was like, why are we spending so much time on these day-to-day -day things and like the mini adventures these characters are having? When are we going to get to the point? But then it just makes it all the more sweeter when you get to that height of the, you know, the twist and the discovery, um, because you finally see what everything's been building to in a really unique way. Um, and that's a, it's a storytelling structure that I find really refreshing because it's different than what I grew up on. I did not grow up on much else other than like sci-fi fantasy books and action movies. So being exposed to anime in my twenties was really cool because I got an experience, um, of a different storytelling structure that, you know, is likely old hat to a huge part of the world, but was very new to me, but I found it really interesting, uh, how instead of leaning away as I was taught to in a lot of my English and related classes, leaning away from spending too much time in the beginning on like, you know, the character's quote unquote boring life. Um, I was instead introduced to how following them throughout their day-to-day -day lives, following these main characters as they, they go about their business as they always have can really make the upset of that business as always that much more engaging. And we can feel how jarring it is for the character because we ourselves are being jarred because we got used to it. So that's a really effective, interesting story structure to me that I always like to uh, bring up when I'm talking plot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I was... can definitely uh, see those. Yeah, like I'm just thinking about a bunch of anime now and going, yeah, like, yeah, eight episodes in, usually something like something weird might happen at, at like the end of the first episode, but eight episodes in, the weirder, bigger twist happens, and you're like, oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about how mm -hmm. uh, with, oh, wait, I can't say that. Um, <laughs> Were you about to talk about Ruby again? I, yes, I, I was thinking about how oh, this does apply to Ruby. <laughs> I'm not it going does. to elaborate anymore, but 
that kind of was like, oh yeah, wait, in this sense, in terms of like structure, Ruby absolutely is an anime, which was funny to think about. Uh, because I was going to say, I watched Full Metal Alchemist a little bit before I met you, Cam, and actually I attended one of your workshops uh, in maybe December. No. Some time ago. We'll say that. But last semester, I attended a creative writing class, because I had to for my degree, uh, do something with the arts. And I was disappointed when this did not get mentioned, because your workshop made it look so cool. I was like, I want to learn about this. And then all we Aww. covered was the Vonnegut oh. triangle, and I was disappointed. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm flattered, first of all. I'm, gl I'm always glad when my workshops are enriching for people because that's like the point you know i think that as an aside part of what i love about doing these episodes with y'all too is that i feel like for a lot of people they get burned by the concept of you know creative writing or writing because english classes and academia can make it feel inaccessible and stressful so it's always fun when i get to make it fun um but yeah i have some thoughts on why kijo tenkatsu isn't talked about a lot and i think some of it is definitely a lack of diversity in creative writing education I was exposed to Kisho Tenketsu as a concept by the only instructor that I had in my degree path that was not a white guy. Um, so diversity, I think, matters. But also, <laughs> if anyone wants to look it up for themselves, I will spell it for you so that you can Google it, because uh, I had to phonetically sound it out for myself so you can be better than me and like have it. So if you want to Google it, um, it's spelled K-I-S-H-O-T-E-N-K-E-T-S-U. It's all one word and you can Google it. And there's, um, there's a great, there's a, there's a storyteller named Kim Yoon Mi who actually made a, a graph um, showing the percentage of time you spend on each of the four plot points. Uh, and then as well as kind of demonstrating the reader's emotional engagement in percentages uh, along with, you know, the, the flow of the story. It's a really great graph. Um, I highly recommend looking it up. I show it to all of my, feels weird to call them students, workshop participants, whenever I, Whenever I do Minions. it. <laughs> Minions. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Oh, that would be horrifying. <laughs> oh, that, that's what I call anyone that I TA for, uh, is I call them my minions. <laughs> that's funny. That's how I open all my, my, my workshops from now on. Hello, Minions. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I think this is probably a good seg segue into twists, given that... Um, <laughs> you just said it a dozen times, and I'm already forgotten how to pronounce it. Kisho Tenketsu. Kisho Tenketsu. Yeah, I'm, you get me in. I am going to have to say that like a thousand times before I will say it right. <laughs> I am bad at words. <laughs> here, here. So, twists. Because this is an episode about plot. We did mention this last episode, I believe, while talking about the Cosmere, because it's relevant. When you have plot, frequently there is also plot twists, and there is, I see at least, a lot of desire to go for the kind of twist that nobody ever sees coming and is, you know, blindsiding your readers. And as we mentioned last week, that's... I at least don't like that. I don't think that's good writing. It's a little antagonistic towards the reader as well. Well, an interesting thing I want to point out, Maya, is that uh, someone should have told the creators and writers at Westworld about this because <laughs> what happened there was 
so I think the original season, they had a big plot twist, whatever, and people didn't guess it. So they were like, great. And then the next season, well, or by the time, like, the next season, people guessed out the next few plot twists. So then they actively changed them from what people had managed to guess to something new because they wanted people not to know the plot twists. Look, if people figure out your plot twists, that's because you're writing a good story and people people can recognize stuff. And no one will ever get it 100% right. You can always change the details a little bit. Predicting the plot is what people do. They base it off numerous things, you know, studying material, looking at what is likely possible. And when you make a twist like that, um, you know, people figuring it out is not a bad thing. That's really good. You've set the path. And instead of having to explain it, people have followed it and gone, this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's what plot twist should. And and part of that is 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 if you if you as the audience have have sort of made this guess as to what the plot twist is gonna be, and then you watch to see if you get it right, and you get it right, and you get that dopamine hit, and yes, and you want to keep watching it. Yes. Uh also on top of that, it's kind of it's almost an infinite monkeys with infinite typewriters thing. I uh, eventually, even if they're guessing completely blindly, someone's gonna get stuff right, and they aren't guessing completely blindly. It's not dissimilar from a language learning model, which I will avoid touching on because then I will rant for twenty minutes. But they know what's happened so far; they can make guesses about what's going to happen next, and they're educated guesses. They're not infinite monkeys on an infinite amount of typewriters with an infinite amount of time they're people mm -hmm. and they have all the other he wrote also another way to look at it from like the perspective of a writer um because i did this recently i'm here's a bizarre thing to say uh i'm almost done with the draft of what will be the second novel that i've attempted to write which is a terrifying concept um but i on purpose made this novel's plot be as predictable as can be. It is strictly within genre conventions. It follows a very well-known structure and it's inspired by something very well-known. But I did it on purpose because I wanted readers to not be subconsciously trying to follow the plot. I wanted it to be so, feel so innate and familiar to readers that they could instead focus on other things, the character development, all of the you know nuances that I'm trying to probe out about the nature of, you know, sibling rivalry and yearning for someone who you thought was dead to you, et cetera, et cetera. You can use your plot as the most exciting thing to, of your story, but you can also use the plot as something ancillary to like the everything else that's going on. And if you have a plot that you feel is, you know, innately predictable, that could actually be a really good thing for your story because it frees people's brain space up to focus on other elements like your characters and your relationships and on and on it goes. Uh, additionally, if I can bring some TTRPG wisdom into it, as a DM and as a player, I, well, as a player, I enjoy guessing about what's going to happen next in the games I play in. And I think Ian said this as well, people enjoy guessing and being right, and so as a DM, if my players guess something, maybe they're wrong, but it's way the hell cooler than whatever... I had planned, I might go with that because I think it's cooler. And the players are going to feel rewarded that they got it right, whether or not they did. It's not about trying to pull one over people. It's about stories. Mm-hmm. Hear, hear.
Awkward silence is awkward. I'm just <laughs> trying to figure out uh, what do I'm restraining myself from from saying. And who has a better story than Brand the Broken? Oh God, I, I was about to say that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate Game of Thrones. Ruined it. <laughs> Speaking of twists that come out of nowhere. Uh, Arya oh. killing the Night King. Okay, listen. Let me have a little bit of a rant, okay, about the Go ending ahead. of Game of Thrones. So the ending of Game of Thrones... Uh, so Game of Thrones is structured based on tw- twists that make sense and are plotted out well. Okay? They're, uh, they're dominoes. So one thing, and it hits an action, sure. blah, 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 blah. What eventually they decided was they believed in their own hype. They gone and went... Well, we can't do the obvious story thing in this obvious story we turn this complex story into. So we can't have John do it. We don't want Danny to do it because she'll eventually go evil, even though that's way more interesting for the, the, the savior to then become no and whatever though. Um oh let's have Arya. Uh, yeah. And then try to retroactively make it the the entire story about her. It's like no, Arya's story, if you read A Song of Ice and Fire, is about basically, in, in the show, Arya's a psychopath. <laughs> she She's literally just a psychopath who wants to kill people and take their faces and use them to kill other people. Great. In the books, it's a little, a little girl who has no identity, is forced to play multiple roles just to survive in this terrible world. She has to pretend to be a boy, to be a maid, to be this, this, an actress. And in the end, it's going to be a question of who is she really? In the show, she just wants to kill people who were wrong to her. And it's, you know, terrible. And then the other stuff like, oh, I guess Danny just forgot about the Iron Fleet. That is a twist. It's stupid. How does she forget about the biggest <laughs> navy existing that already messed her up the previous season? <laughs> this How is like the, the hell do you get ambushed in midair by a sh- fleet of ships? It, it, it's it's right. It, it's when your plot doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And then uh, Danny goes insane because people around her die. Varys as a character makes no sense because you don't adapt the main reason for his story. His story is power resides where people think it resides. And he tries to put his own person, who may or may not be, a, you know, legitimate ruler. But it doesn't matter because people think he is. Without that, he's just a weird schemer dude who doesn't make sense. And this is when uh, I just talked about adapting plots and adapting characters. So when you adapt, use the material. And the problem with the problem with Dave and Dan is they didn't like the books after Storm of Swords. They didn't they like Dance of Dragons, but they didn't like a Feast for Crows. And Feast for Crows sets up a lot of plot in the second half. If you think of Game of Thrones as two different, you know, sections, you have. The stuff before the wed red wed red wedding and the stuff a- after. So it's a complete plot reset. Things are carried over, but it's a new story. I feel like and you have to introduce the new characters, the new players, rebuild, and they just completely completely ignored that. And was like, actually, let's keep on turning the wheel of these same stories, even though we're going a bit fast and everything. And I blame George for taking too long, but I also. I think you could have come up with better original plots too. It it's contrived, you know. It's contrived. It's 
how do we please the soccer moms who now watch the show on Dragon's Cool? Uh, and I and I was so glad when House of the Dragon came around. Now House of the Dragon has a different problem where they try to have the shock moment at the end of every episode. That's a less of a problem. Like there's some still some things I go in and go, that's just stupid. Uh, but still, the writing is there. The plot is there. They see what plot, you know, they don't go in depth and go into conspiracies. They just follow the simple plot. of I'm fine. Blood is not a good book, by the way. It's lower quality. But, uh, you know, it's fine. It's fine. And I just think when adapting, try and stick to the author. Understand the author, you know. I... I <laughs> It was. It's one of the most frustrating things ever. It's like the last, and for me, it's like the last, you know, four five seasons of Game of Thrones that I dislike because I just see the tumbling Jenga tower of a story going. No, don't pull that one out. You need it. <laughs> Have you guys ever witnessed a story fall apart like a Jenga tower like that? Because the adapter removed the piece they weren't meant to. Uh, no, because I usually avoid adaptations because <laughs> no, of that exact no, phenomenon. No, no, you're too smart, See, Maya. I've just watched... At the Halo show. I've just watched stories... I've just watched stories fall apart right in front of me, except they don't have the excuse of an adaptation. They just start falling apart after a certain point, and I just sit there and stare in bitterness. Mm. So in the, <laughs> the, but what is the hardest, like, plot destruction you've ever seen just by putting you know, a piece that wasn't meant to be there in or removing a piece, you know, the twist that went, okay, this ruined the story for me or this is taking the story in a direction I don't like anymore. <laughs> okay, so I would like to preface this with two things. First of all, I was a dumb teenager. Second of all, I hung out on Tumblr. This covers a multitude of sins. Um, but I think it, while not an adaptation... <laughs> Well, not an adaptation, the story that comes to mind whenever we start talking about feeling something get knocked loose and then watching it spiral out of control, um, and I cringe as I say this, is that I did very much watch the entirety of the infamous CW show, The Hundred, um, you know, the one with the lesbian death heard around the world. And I watched as what was a very interesting story concept uh, setting aside all of my beef with the acting and the 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 craft choices in the script, the story concept itself went from being incredibly interesting and with a lot of moral dilemma and implications that made viewers think. And then it started to spiral downward into teenage soap opera territory in a manner that I found very disappointing. And uh, to this day, I'm still very disappointed by it to the point where I cited the show in my master's thesis as a crash course into everything you should not do in sci-fi storytelling. Maybe that well, was a little bit mean, but I have no regrets. It is the CW. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a... I will not, I will not, for the sake of time and everyone's brain cells, I will not go into excruciating detail, but the TLDR is that um, the... There were two points during the story where I felt the narrative spiral out of control. The first one was the infamous uh, character death heard around the world in which they literally, to a T, played the barrier gaze trope straight. Pun not intended. Oh, boy. And uh, it, then the showrunner, the showrunner, when confronted about how that was done very poorly, doubled down and it was a big old mess. Um, and 
I hung in with the show after that happened because I wanted, honestly, to watch the world burn and see how bad it would get. Also, I was having to watch it um, after it aired, so I wasn't I wasn't exactly contributing to any sort of ratings. So I, you know, was like, maybe it's fine. Um, over the course of the rest of the show, um, they made narrative decisions that almost felt like they were walking the original core element of the story back. And what what ultimately started as a story about the lengths to which human beings will go either out of instinct, selfishness, or a combination to survive ended up being a story more about a single character's martyr and victim complex. And the the decision that the the showrunner seemed to have made to zoom the lens way in on one character when before it was mostly an ensemble cast did a huge detriment to the story in my opinion because instead of understanding the breadth and depth of human experience around these things like suffering and survival we just got like one character who went from a, a interesting enough character given what they had to work with uh, to a very one note character who was just all about the martyr complex. And that was really disappointing to me. And as a viewer and as, you know, even now thinking about in retrospect as someone who is a storyteller, um, I can think of about a dozen ways where they could have done that better in like every sense of the word. Uh, so I think that the story, the concept was really compelling. I think they could have done a lot more with what they had. And I was glad when the show was done and I was freed from its clutches because at least the characters that I liked had happy endings. So like that was fine. But it's a it, it's a very interesting thing to think about how, you know, the the plot of the story itself could have been interesting. But the fact that they zoomed the story in on one character who became very one note was not, which just kind of, you know, furthers the point we were talking about to get back to like the actual point of this episode um, where, Oops. you know, plot is really important. No, no. I'm trying. I'm trying to help myself, not just go off. Um, but plot is important, but it's not everything. You can have an ironclad plot, whatever that looks like to you. But if you don't have characters that compel in whatever way, um, then you you might not be in the best shape. And even so, like kind of dovetailing off of, but so the hundred, the one thing that the hundred, that's not, that's, that's a bit oversimplified. One of the things that the hundred did right, in my opinion, is they introduced, and this is hard to do. They introduced a character where universally viewers were compelled by this guy, not because he was a good guy, but because he was such an antagonist that we wanted to watch to see how long it would be before he got punched in the face. We were all as a fandom universally invested in watching this guy just be a jerk. And then because that's how the investment in this character started, his storyline and character arc as a character um, where he actually like grew as a person and developed a conscience and changed for the better. And that was a really satisfying story arc, even though the larger plot arc was a mess because we started off being like, wow, I just want to see how long before this guy gets punched in the face um, to, oh, hey, like he turned out all right. And ironically for my Lock Tomb fans out there, uh, the guy's name was also John. So maybe it's like a thing with the name, but well, I don't think that John Gaius has that kind of redemption arc coming for him. This guy did. And that was really cool. So, you know, if you you've got a plot that works um you can you can focus more on your characters and you too could build a character arc where it's like well i want to see this guy get wrecked and then by the end it's like oh yeah you actually had like a very satisfactory narratively resonant growth arc so it can be done that was one of the things that they did right i always got to put something good with all the bad <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have much of my own answer for this. I don't have a lot of things that I enjoy get adapted. And I'm... I guess really the only thing I have that's like this is, like Camp said, not an adaption. It was a show on Netflix, an animated show called The Blood of Zeus. Neat concept. Neato. Interesting. It's just, there was absolutely no concept of pacing and just things kept getting mm. more and more deranged in a derogatory sense. I enjoy some unhinged stories, but what happened in The Blood of Zeus was... Not it, Chief. <laughs> Personally, the there's there's two things that come to mind for me when thinking of the phrase bad adaptations. And those are the movie adaptation of Aragon. Oh, God. Which I know I have seen and I have completely blocked it out. <laughs> I have. The only thing I remember that of that are a few frames. I've seen it. Although, the book itself also, in hindsight, isn't that great. Credit for, for the author writing it at age 16. Yes, that, that is definitely more than I ever did. Yeah. Uh, and then um, the movie that does not exist in Ba Sing Se, M. Night Shyamalan's adaptation <laughs> of The Last Airbender, which I have not seen because I saw the trailers and went... Oh, this sucks. I have seen precisely one, like, two-second clip of the special effects from that movie, and I am never watching that movie. I'm not sure whether this counts as removing an essential element of the plot or an essential element of the world-building, but in the adaptation, firebenders are incapable of producing their own fire. What? I think that's both. Dear God. I... Why? Because obviously all of the other elemental benders have to use whatever's around them. Makes sense to make the firebenders that way too. Right? That movie has one of the... Ah! That movie has one of the funniest scenes ever with seven guys throw a single rock. And it takes... <laughs> oh, I've seen that scene. five-second choreography routine to do that. <laughs> yes, that that is actually the dude, dude, bit dude. that I have seen of the movie, and I'm just like, wow, this is terrible. So you I know, think I saw it floating around Tumblr at one point. You know, earthbending in the show, it's like, okay, surround yourself in rocks or throw, you know, basically mountains at one another. There, eight guys, single pebble. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, and... I don't know how how M Night ended up being the director. Did they, did they see his like two or three movies before that? <laughs> the Happening. <laughs> have you guys ever watched The Happening? No, I have not. You want to talk about plots? Okay. Um, <laughs> the Happening is a movie I will have to show you guys sometime. Oh my god, that is not a good sign. <sighs> I think I've heard that the plot is basically plants decide to wipe out human civilization. They no the plants they think plants are trying to wipe people out by making people kill themselves. It it's 
it's so stupid, so dumb. Oh, God. There's a scene of Mark Wahlberg bargaining with a potted plastic plant. <laughs> uh, so, like, sure, why not? Like many other M. Night films, it is a travesty to the mental health community. No, um, hmm. it depends on what you think of it in that way. It's it's more ridiculously dumb <laughs> than anything. Yeah, I mean, I am mostly just taking the opportunity for a cheap shot. Yeah. But, but yeah, you look at stuff like that, and his other two were like the lady in the water, and the one about, oh, we're from the 1800s, but actually we're a hidden like Amish community, and this blind girl the village. That, yeah, that one. Wait, yeah. that's actually just a... That's a rip of an, of an yeah, actual yeah, yeah. book. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that, that, that was the problem with, with like M. Night as well. When he came to plots, it was like, oh, I'm known for plot twists. I got to one-up myself each time. I'll make even my stories even more, you know, thing. Um, yeah, it, that's, again, don't don't fall into your own hype. Don't get, don't become the guy who's known to do stuff. Yeah, bringing it, bring it back to how not to do a twist. Yeah, yeah, not to do the twist. Mm-hmm. Don't f- Make sure your twist is actually good. <laughs> like, a suggestion. Like, it changes it. Like, the blind girl finding out that they're not, like... Uh, you know, they're not, like, in this, like, 1800 sort of thing, and it's just modern day. Doesn't really change the story that much, I don't think. <laughs> like, and other stuff, you know. Like, The yeah. Sixth Sense, The Sixth Sense did a good twist. Yeah. You have, mm-hmm. I, I think it's been long enough to, that we don't have to put a spoiler warning on this one. Yeah, uh, Gay <laughs> Snape kills straight Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite the six spot. sets yeah yeah six you sets. stumbled me as i was moving and i like whacked my fist right into the <laughs> mic because i was not expecting that description <laughs> you you all have have seen or at least heard heard of the the plot of the sixth sense right uh never really well, you're 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 amazing even i've watched this and i don't watch yeah. anything <laughs> okay i live under a rock yeah hmm if I'm recalling correctly, that was uh, Shyamalan's first big movie, right? Yeah, it's that and then Unbreakable. Yeah. Um, I've heard about that. So The Sixth Sense is about a uh, psychologist who is a therapist for a child who claims to be able to see ghosts. Um, and the big twist at the end of the movie is that it turns out uh, Bruce Willis's character, the psychologist, has been dead the entire time. And he's one of these ghosts that the child has been uh, seeing and interacting with. And there are hints throughout the entire movie that he's actually a ghost the entire time. I think, uh, for, for one thing... He never directly interacts with another character, if I'm recalling correctly. It has been Besides a... for the boy. But there's yeah. stuff like, oh, my wife's ignoring me lately and just won't talk to me, you know, and stuff like this and yeah, and things. And it's just because he doesn't realize that he's dead. <laughs> and, like, the, the crux of the movie is once the little boy 
helps people accept or, you know, gives them closure, they move on, you know, they stop being ghosts. So the ending of the movie is Bruce Willis's character realizing and going, oh, oh, and then he moves on. Yeah. Huh. It's already a good movie. M. Night had like two, two hits. Uh, and then he kind of fumbled. <laughs> That's M. Night. <laughs> that matches with what I've heard of him and what I've read of the plots. The only one that I think would probably interest me might might be Unbreakable. Yeah, so M. Night went from The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, which were two very successful, to Signs. Have you guys ever seen Signs? <laughs> I have not seen Signs. Um, Aliens but... are weak to water. That's the twist. Yes. <laughs> they went to a planet that is three-fourths water to take over. So I have seen some theory, some people theorycrafting to make it make sense. Um, basically... There's there's this theory craft that they're not space aliens, they're actually demons. You're giving M Night too much credit, okay? Let's let's not yeah, get, get that's it's probably it probably is giving him too much credit. This man made a movie with Will Smith and Jaden Smith for the two main actors. <laughs> you ever seen it, that one? Uh, um, just say, was that I think I remember seeing trailers for that one. It was his, the one about it, it was movie after Earth. the the last day bender. It, it was like was the that, apocalyptic Earth one, right? Wasn't it called yeah. After Earth? Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't see that. I saw trailers for it. I think I've seen it, but again, I if I have, I've mostly blocked it out. Okay. Um. Now. We are running short on time (laughs) and got distracted again. Um, Plot with respects to being a planner or a pantser. Now, as I've mentioned on this show a numerous of times, I am a pantser. The plot happens to me. I am writing and then things happen. There are some people who plan stuff out and do all kinds of careful planning. What happens, happens for me. Uh, as a writer, I just kind of go with the flow. Uh, I kind of, as Cam said, I don't really worry about fitting the plot into any kind of structure. I just tell the events that happen and work with it from there. Dylan, I believe you're a bit more of a planner than I am, correct? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm... Since I'm more of a person, as a person, I'm all about data you know, like analytics, you know, looking at things going, oh, what would be the appropriate amount of scenes to effectively do this? Hmm, I better plan that out. Instead of just going, yeah, it feels right about now. It's like, hmm, if I wanted to make a quick romance, would I, how many scenes or how many things would I dedicate or how many moments? Like, I, I consider all these things and, you know, so when I'm determining determining stuff, I'm like, okay, let's look at how to uh let's plan out the big moments you know you like you got there are things you want to hit and you're like okay let's plan these big moments and then plan what happens in between each of them to lead to one another that's the way i would do it so you stop big and you zoom in zoom in zoom in zoom in and once you're zoomed all the way in you're you are writing the story at that point so it's basically 
that. And with characters, you know, you make... So I usually start with characters and because I do character-focused stories and, and put the characters in the plot, whatever. Um, and then my main focus is on, you know, the, how the character relationships evolve and everything and hitting those big points and I mix them in with the plot narrative. Uh, like, I've planned out broadly, like, a series, and I'm still planning. I've planned it for a long time. I've revised it a lot. Uh, let's just say uh, the main ship is t- t- two very, uh, very lovely uh, people who both might be the chosen one. Neither might be the chosen one. One thinks the other is the chosen one. One has really bad anxiety that she might not be the chosen one, and this one might be, and that messes her up. <laughs> Basically, I'm I, I'm going to try and mess around with the chosen one thing and see how that would affect people. <laughs> uh, and that's really fun. And I've also got these other characters who I also want to hit major moments with and everything. And exploring this, you know, this big plot about ancient history and a modern war and how those two things connect and the, this divine blood and these, you know, this guy and what he wants to do. And I've got to do all that, so I find like it's easier to plan because if I just had like six these six broad ideas and I didn't plan, I just started writing, I would never evolve the story to a point where I feel because I like to write complex things. I like to, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a f- George R. R. Martin fan. You know, I like your complexity. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I do. I look at it and I go, okay, I want to hit this, this, and this. Uh, D&D, I'm more of a buy-my-pants sort of guy. Because, <laughs> you know, I have the idea, okay, I want to end up here, and this is like the final battle. Everything in between, I'm like, I don't know, this? Well, what did my players want to do this week? <laughs> oh, they want to, you know, put a, you know, get rid of a uh, a government in this foreign nation? Sure, whatever. <laughs> I didn't plan on that, but Okay. Uh, that's really my difference. So, yeah, I'm a I'm a hard planner in terms of my story writing. I find it very funny how I leaned up in my seat to say in the, kind of the middle of that that the plot sounded very interesting. And I made the fucking Minecraft food noise. Body, why are you <laughs> like this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, the plot is basically uh, I'll give the character names. Uh, so there's Belle Noel. Uh, basically, her she lives on an island that belongs to this nation. That island gets invaded by this very big imperialistic nation. Uh, she becomes a refugee, and eventually, uh, there's a special military school program that she has to apply for, uh, which is looking to use the last remaining parts of magic in the world to create weapons to fight back against and take back the home, uh, her home, which she signs up for, and. 12 students in uh in her class they are free classes uh and basically uh they they are trained to try and beat back this far superior nation to them and of course there's a lot more than that but that's the general premise uh and her love interest is uh bloodweb pill uh who you know and they are both have basically the same sort of general prophecy about them 
It's just Bell is completely oblivious to this prophecy existing, while Bloodwith is obsessed with it. And so she becomes kind of obsessed with Bell and is like, What are you? Are you are you the guy? Um, or am I the guy? Are either of us the guy? I was pretty sure I was the guy. No, I'm not sure. Help me. And Bl- and Bell is like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's uh, that's basically the story, and uh, I go from there, and I have all sorts of shenanigans happening in between, and it's very fun. <laughs> so we are looking like we're pretty much out of time here. So before we wrap up, uh, Ian, Cam, do either of you have anything you'd like to share about plot with respects to like planning versus pantsing, or practical advice for writing a plot? Uh, I mean, I guess the only thing that I would add, um, which folks have probably already inferred, is that, um, you know, if you are a planner, um, I go back and forth depending, but if you are a planner and you start writing and you find that, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, the characters have started running away with you, um, it would probably, and I say this from personal experience, it would probably behoove you to adjust your plot rather than trying to force your characters into the box. Sometimes our brains instinctively know what's good, even if we don't. So, uh, you know, planning is great, and I highly recommend it for a lot of different reasons, but give yourself grace and space and give your characters the breathing room that they need, because you never know what's going to come out of it if you try. There's my cheesy little thing for the day. (laughs) Ian? So most of my writing experience is for running D&D. Um, and I kind of agree with Dylan there that you kind of have to be a pantser when you're running tabletop RPG games and that sort of live collaborative storytelling environment. Um, because you don't know what your players are going to do until they do it. So all you can do is be ready to run with whatever the other folks are after. Um, Be that overthrowing a government or uh, running off into the Feywild to serve an Archfey. These are very specific. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. One of those is from D&D and the other one is from one of my games that I've run. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, the, the first one I think is the game that we all play and that is going to happen later tonight. We Good get a little you. distracted. Sure. <laughs> we have been involved in multiple coups. Multiple? Wow. Good for Oops. you. <laughs> one of them was on purpose. <laughs> I respect it. I'm sure you had good reasons. Um, the lore master was a dick. He was a dick. Fair enough. I mean, you don't remember anything besides this. Uh, Cam, he was a uh, sort of, as I would describe, a... uh, He disliked half-elves because they were impure. Ah. He was an elf. He he is an elf supremacist. Yes. The funny thing is, Cam, he he had a half-elf daughter, so he's also a hypocrite. Oh, I remember well, that. And part. he deserves everything he's coming to him. <laughs> um, I think I'm the only character in the party who's a half elf, so I do remember this very well, and I had a little bit of a personal stake in this. 
I wanted to set him on fire because he's an <laughs> asshole. Who don't you want to set on fire, Maya? <laughs> um, Althea. <laughs> That's Contra's character. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's we're we're getting yeah, we're getting it, really uh, sidetracked so let's wrap, wrap this up. up yes kevin do you have uh any social media or any projects you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners uh sure if you want to also learn things about writing from me on another format i am restarting my patreon where i do once monthly workshops that for a certain tier are also recorded and available to access after and twice monthly writing hours where I'm your body double on screen and video and you have an hour to just write with no distractions. Um, you can join me there if you want. Um, it's patreon.com slash alien rights, alien like the creature and then rights all one word. Um, so next month, May, uh, we're doing a workshop about character building. So if you want to hang out with me there, you're welcome to come do so. There's also a Discord server where there will be shenanigans. I had to rebuild it so it's fresh and clean. So if you want to come to a fresh and clean server and do shenanigans, um, you can. Cool. Uh, we'll, um... we'll try and get some. Uh, we'll try and get some links in the description for all that. And Dylan, I think you have some some exciting announcements. Yeah. So. Uh, I'm currently for the next 12 months at least attempting to be a full-time YouTuber and, uh, among other things, streamer. Uh, so yeah, if you want to see my YouTube channels, look for XVG Dylan for all my gaming stuff or Threads of Dragons for my D&D analysis, which my first video, uh, my character analysis of Grog Strongjaw from Critical Role Campaign 1 Vox Machina, played by Travis Willingham, went up on Thursday. You can also subscribe to my Patreon. Uh, at the middle tier of the free, and you can get the next video, which includes Keyleth, uh, my analysis on that. And soon, uh, next Thursday on Patreon, I will also be doing uh, my analysis on Percy. So you get that, and I plan on covering the entirety of Campaign 1 and Campaign 2's characters. So you have that to look forward to. After that, I plan on doing uh, more uh, character analysis, and that will be my main shtick. So yeah. Uh, so sort of an additive to what we do here. You can go see that. Uh, that's at Fred of Dragons. If you want to follow me on Twitch, it is twitch.tv slash xvgdylan. Uh, on Patreon, I am Fred of Dragons. Uh, just like this, we can put these all in the description and you, you can be helped find. And if you're interested to see my uh, low-quality writing, uh, you can always check me out on Archive of, <laughs> of Our Own as xvgdylan. And of course, for our own this podcast, uh, you can also reach out to us on email, uh, fanfictapes at gmail.com. If you have anything that you want us want to share with us or want us to read on the podcast, uh, you can also reach out to us on Twitter. Maya, what is our Twitter? At fanfictiontapes. Awesome. Uh, I don't see any mail for us yet, um, but we would love to hear from you if you listen to us. We would also love it if you would leave us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to this show. All right. I think that is our word count for the week. Yeah, we're only uh, 10 minutes over time, about. I am and have been Maya. I am and always will be Dylan. 
I am always honored to be your recurring guest, Cam. Thank you for having me. It has been lovely having you on again. Yes. And as always, I am Ian. Until next time, bye. 